Good morning. Uh, we're continuing our study of the New Testament book of First Peter. So you can turn in your Bibles, First Peter chapter 1. Among the, the burdens that weigh on us most heavily are the uncertainties of life, the questions of, of what will happen. For those who are young, it's the unknowns of getting settled in life, of what school should you go to? If you've just graduated, uh, what will be my career? How do I get a job? If you're looking at a house, and then you look at the prices of houses, and you think, how could this be possible? Uh, how do we afford a home? What is a relationship that will work for me? Uh, there are the whys that hit us throughout life when grievous loss comes. Why is this person I love, why are they gone? Why did this person I love betray me? Why, why was I abused? There are the uncertainties of where our world is headed. We look at what people think. We, we look at the solutions that people offer, and it can frighten us. We wonder how can certain values gain any traction? And then as values that we see as foolish do grow, we're fearful of what the future holds. We, we wonder what will the world look like? for our children, our grandchildren. And then there's the question of how will problems turn out? What will happen? And our minds race with all sorts of scenarios, and we usually don't come up with good ones. We think of every possible bad scenario there is. We all expect problems will come, we, we accept them. It is, for, at least from my experience, the uncertainty in them that often seems to be the heaviest aspect. Not knowing where this is going or, or why it's happened or not knowing exactly how to respond. But today we, we see in the goodness of God's Word that he, he does give clarity to us that supersedes all of our fears, all of our unknowns and uncertainties. This morning we're going to begin reading with verse 8. Uh, we're going to overlap a little bit with the portion that Dan covered so well last Sunday. Though you have not seen Jesus Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about 
the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come, each of us, with, with struggles we clearly see, and we have some we, we don't even understand our own hearts fully. We come to you who sees all and knows and has response and wisdom and grace for us. We ask that you would help us to entrust our hearts, our minds to your word. We ask that you would speak to us that you would connect your word to our lives in ways that we can move forward to please and honor you. Help us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God's people knew that he would deliver them. They just weren't sure how he would do that. But as soon as Adam had brought down the curse of sin when he had rebelled against God from that moment forward, God had been promising his deliverance. And these promises saturate the history of God's people and the message of the Old Testament. There were consistent themes throughout the centuries in these promises from God. Themes that the people of God clung to generation by generation. For God had promised that his deliverer would bring righteousness to his people. That he would bring relief from suffering and bondage. And that he would vanquish all of their enemies. That he would be a great king who would reign over a kingdom unfading. And that the peoples of the world would actually be drawn to him. And from throughout the world, there would be those who would come to know the true God and love him. Now, the people that were hearing these promises and prophecies centuries ago were just like us. They wanted to know when, how, who. We want to know more exactly. Thanks for the good news. We want the details. Verse 10 in our passage emphasizes how earnestly they searched. They searched, they inquired carefully, and again it says they were inquiring. So Peter wants us to know this is something they took seriously. They are, they're trying to figure it out the best they can. The searching, uh, 
we must assume, meant they were going through scriptures that had already been given. What had God already said? And they were comparing that with, with later prophecies. What had God been saying through his prophets to the people? They were inquiring. They were, obviously, they were calling out to God as we do. Lord, we want to understand. We want to know. Some of the prophecies had to have baffled them when it spoke of a, a Savior who would not only suffer, that he would be crushed by God. That certainly didn't seem to make sense. He's a king who's going to reign. The Lord's going to crush him. How does that work out? Or that a virgin would be with child, and no one can understand how that could be. And so there were, there were themes they recognized of God's deliverance, his care, his goodness. And yet, there are some parts of it that they couldn't fit together. And although these prophecies, whenever they came, always served the people of that generation. The Word of God is always profitable. It always benefits our soul. It became clear to them, it says particularly those who gave the prophecies, that they would not see the fulfillment of them. Verse 12 says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Peter wants us to see that we are now in an, an age and a time of advantage. Peter wants us to see what we have now that the Lord has so fully revealed his plan and his purposes. Uh, we have clarity about God's plan. We have clarity about his promises, and we also have the beginning of the fulfillment of all those promises. And it's those two areas I want to press into this morning. The first of them is that we have clarity about God's plan and his promises. We know the great extent of the salvation God had promised. Exactly what does that deliverance look like? We know now in ways that men never did before. We know that the deliverance of God is not about us just getting a better swing at life. God's going to come in, make things a little bit more even, and we're going to, from a stronger position, be able to make a better life from ourselves. It's not a better swing at life. Our souls were set free. It is not that God's going to help us try harder, but that our guilt has entirely disappeared. God himself saying, it cannot be found. And all separation from God has disappeared. Every wall torn down. That evil is defeated. 
that Satan is defeated and that death itself was defeated before a risen Savior. Our salvation is not God helping us for the rest of our lives. It is God delivering us for all eternity. People of God, you know the gospel. You clearly know the center of God's heart for you. You know his plans and desires for you. These promises are no longer hidden. What is it that God will do to deliver us? What does this deliverance mean? What does it look like? We have been given all of it. And what we know, the clarity we have about the salvation given to us overshadows everything that you don't know. And so those plans of how do I buy a house and where's my career? There are uncertainties. The gospel overshadows every one of them. Or how do I respond to these people that misuse me? What you have in the gospel overshadows it. I'm not sure how to exactly respond to this this issue and problem, the complexities of how other people are responding, the gospel overshadows all of it. There is nothing you don't know that can measure to any degree to the greatness of what has been revealed in the gospel. It is the great truth, the great deliverance, the great goodness of God. It is known not only what he has done, what is accomplished for you, but where is he taking you and what is he going to complete? What is he going to do? All of that is made clear to us. And it is that clarity that should be filling our hearts and dominating how we live more than those relatively small uncertainties when they are compared to what we know. We not only know the great extent of our salvation, we know the great glory of our Savior. For God did not raise up a man, God became man. Your Savior is the very Son of God. It is not someone that God said, let me help him. It is not a mere representative. God in flesh is your personal, permanent, forever, faithful, unfailing Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who stands for you, no one less. 
And he did not come to intimidate. He did not come in wealth that was unapproachable. He did not come with a sword. He came in humility and graciousness, drawing to him those society didn't care for, those society looked down on, those whom the culture felt were worthless, and Jesus just gave his life and his body that's come into the midst of them and just drew them near. And now we see, as it has never been seen before Christ, now we see what is the full measure of love? How, how far can love go? How, how big can love be? When God demonstrated his love for us, while we were sinners, Christ, God in flesh, died for you by name. And to pay for your sins, he had to specifically know every one of them and gather them all to himself and pay the price for every bit of We now know the majesty of grace. Oh, we, we'd always heard. Humanity had been told of the grace of God. But now, now we see this salvation that we don't lift a finger to earn. We don't carry out a single work to deserve. It is given freely to the worst and most wretched of sinners. Not when they go through a preparatory process. Not when they become acceptable in the eyes of the church. In the moment, the worst person calls out and says, Jesus, forgive and save me. And in that moment, the entirety of God's grace and love is poured out, settles in, and never leaves. Which means, believer, that the disgust you have for your own failures and you turn from God in embarrassment, He has never, ever turned an eye from you. I don't deserve it. How could it be? It's the sheer majesty of his grace. It is an ocean that could never be used up, a fountain that never runs dry. Believer, you not only know the gospel, you know Jesus. And he overshadows everything that's fearful. The person of Jesus sustains us. And all that we don't know, 
and all that you don't know how to respond and what to do, all that you cannot control, it is the person of Jesus, the Son of God, the most wondrous person who exists, the one whose love cannot be matched, the one whose grace has been proven. And he is the one who personally stands and says, I will take care of you. And you will not be lost, for I will not cast you out. No one can take you away. And even your own foolishness and sins cannot rob you of the grace that comes. For all who have trusted in Christ, we are born new, and our salvation is held because the price was paid. The sin, the guilt, it's been covered. It's gone. We have clarity about God's plan and His promises. We know what this salvation is. We know who our Savior is. These are the biggest of all issues. These are the greatest of all truths. There are things that are heavy. There are realities that hurt, and they do press in, but they cannot measure themselves and outweigh what Christ brings. Not only do we have this clarity of God's plan, secondly, we we have the beginning of the fulfillment of all of these promises. There are aspects of our salvation that are still in part. We have them. They're not completely fulfilled, but they all have begun. The fulfillment has taken root, and they are all certain. For there is no fulfillment that God has begun in those who come to Christ that will not be completed. There will not be any halfway Christians in heaven. None uncompleted, no derelict souls off to the side, half undone, and we're all looking, well, when is that life going to be finished? The moment that tends to create the most fear in us, this, this shows how much we, we know but don't fully appreciate it because that moment when all of it is made complete is what we fear the most. You know what it is. Death. Doing everything we can to fight it. And it is when God breaks. The rest we desire, the heart of Christ fulfilled in us that we desire. The missing of people is real. Nothing is more real than the fulfillment of the promises of God in Christ. We are becoming like Jesus, even though we and the rest of the people in our church are not fully there yet. We are on our way.
We have peace with God. We don't have peace with everyone else in the world. We do have peace with God. And eventually peace everywhere else will reign. We are born again of the Spirit. And though our bodies do weaken, they get sick, and these, these shells will perish. Our souls born anew. And there is a body planned. Now you probably, if you think about it, there are things you'd like to ensure about it. Could I request? Height, hair. <laughs> uh, I, I'm guessing we're going to be happy with it. We are blessed citizens of Christ's kingdom. We, we still live in a world with misery. But we are citizens of a kingdom that will never know a moment's misery. Don't let what is still in part not completely done. Don't let the in part aspect of fulfillment overcome what is certain of fulfillment. Because the fulfillment, it's too great. It's too wondrous. It's too forever to allow the impart to dominate how we think about the life God has given us. And verse 12 presses that point about our advantage, declaring even the angels, when they think about the fulfillment of the gospel, they're amazed. He begins in this passage by reminding us that the prophets who spoke of the promises of God, they knew something of the deliverance, but it was very hazy to them. Uh, they wanted to know all that was in it, but they couldn't see clearly. The angels, they do see clearly. They know exactly what our salvation entails. And they know exactly who it is that saves. And they look upon it and they are astonished. How could it be the creator of existence has joined himself forever to humanity? How could the Son of God do that? How could it be that the majesty of heaven came and let himself be despised, abused, and crucified when at any moment he could have stopped it all? How could it be that those defiled, foolish wretched creatures. How could it be that they are now the beloved sons and daughters of God adopted into his family? The angels don't have that. They are not his adopted family, and they do not know what it is 
to say that Jesus, the Son of God, died for me. So how should all this clarity and fulfillment affect our lives? Two things I'll mention. The first we, we see in verses 8 and 9, which is why I wanted to go back and pull that part in, with such a salvation fulfillment that we see, our hearts should overflow. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible, filled with glory. Verse 8 is describing a heavenly disposition. What's the attitude of every citizen in heaven? Love, belief, rejoicing. We, we are being invited, called to begin living now. How will we will be living forever. Forever we will because our hearts will be completely filled with the presence and the love and the fulfillment of, of no half-heartedness, no sin entering in, no selfishness. We will be made complete. And the natural overflow of that will be rejoicing and love and the full trust of all that God does. And because it is so certain that that is coming, we are to live embracing that heart now. That is to be the overflow. If these things are true of us, these are the traits that lift our lives. We're all, we're all trying to make life better. We want to enjoy life more. We want life to work. Do you know what will make your life work better than anything else? Love. Love God. Love people. Believe everything that God says. It's true. Rejoice in Him rather than being bothered at what's in the world. What is it that people need from you? What impact can you have? So those in the world that bring so much uncertainty and you're wondering, how could they think that way? How could they do that? And it starts to bring fear and that fear brings anger. And then angry words come and then accusing words and then we find ourselves like the world and if we, instead of our anger, we give love to the world. We show graciousness. We speak with compassion to those whose ideas we despise. Do you want to have an impact in this world? And do you want your own heart to no longer be overwhelmed with angst? Then fill it with what fills the heart of God. And yelling at people doesn't fill the heart of God. And 
posting back on Facebook and giving everyone your ideas. If everything you think would make the world better, every candidate you choose is elected, and every policy you like is embraced, and all this vast money that's grabbed is used perfectly well, do you know what will happen to the world? Everyone in it will go to hell because only Jesus saves from that. No candidate saves anyone. No policy saves anyone. No amount of money spent saves anyone. All that saves is the shed blood of Christ. And those who come to see, they need him and call out. And he says, you're mine. Don't we know that's true? Then let's live that way. Let's speak that way. Let's value people that bother us, people that abuse us. Let's look at them as people without a savior. When their hearts are so empty, they don't, they don't know how to live, they don't know how to think, and they never will until they have Jesus. Our hearts filled the love for God and neighbor, trust in the Lord, joy over the gospel. These things don't change with circumstances because all circumstances serve our king. And the second application I would make is that with what we know about life and eternity, our value system should reflect it. So at home, what is the most fundamental value that dictates the routines of life at home? Is it what we know about Christ and his gospel? If it is, then we will make sure that in our home there is discipleship of our children and engagement with the house of God because nothing else is as important as our connecting our hearts with what God has established. His word, his people, his work. And it, it doesn't matter what makes it hard to do that. You, you just have to do it. When my children began school, and I'd spent all my life up to that point staying up, sleeping in, I would stay up and read where it's quiet. I'd done that for years. I never got up early. Well, they have to go to school. We want to have devotions for myself with them. It doesn't fit the schedule, so we just changed it. It wasn't, we can't make this work. It is, what must we do 
if we are going to be serious about the discipleship of our children and our souls. There are no oppositions. There's nothing in the way outside of our resistance. We simply do what is necessary because nothing compares to the eternal life of our children and what affects them is nothing you're going to get for them. It is what Christ will do. And so that must be the center. How can anything compare to that? In our finances and striving, what we're trying to get or do, what's lasting, what serves his kingdom? The issues that drive our words, what points to the deliverer to Christ? With what we know about eternity, about the gospel, about Christ. Aren't we just living that way? Where people could, okay, I can see what they value. That our children can see what we value. That our own souls can say, yes, I live by what I know is true. We see and we have what is most important. So let's make sure that's what leads us. What is most important? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts, that you would confirm by your voice, that you would lead with your voice. We ask for any who don't know you that you would confirm to them in this moment that their sin can be washed away now. Give them faith to call upon you. And for all who have, that we would cling to that as what is of greatest importance. In Jesus' name. Amen.